In episode 111 of the Futurized podcast, the topic is how to demystify technology. Our guest is Jennifer Byrne, CEO of Arrived Workforce Connections. In this conversation, we talk about the future of work, particularly the increasing globalization of the workforce, and we discuss whether everybody needs to be an engineer to be good in technology. And we figure out how to navigate a non-traditional career. Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. Jennifer, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well, look, it is a good day to talk about technology, right? And any day is good. Um, uh, but you have this passion for demystifying technological terms. And I think you, you told me that this sort of comes because, you know, you are a little bit of an unlikely technologist in a certain way. You have come to, uh, you know, to the topic of technology through social science and psychology. Give me a, a sense of how you started you know, your professional journey, because it's, I guess it's relevant to what you're doing now, which is advising people on their professional journeys. How, how did you uh, carve out kind of what, what you ha- have ended up doing? Well, it started a long time ago and uh, not unlike the kinds of decisions that many people make when they make a career move or a move into technology. It was a very practical decision I was in social sciences, as you said, and uh, running a nonprofit, had worked in that space for a while. And um, although the work was very fulfilling and what I originally thought I wanted to do with myself, it it wasn't uh, a career that offered uh, as much opportunity as I needed financially and otherwise. And so uh, at the time, this was the late 90s, it was pretty easy to get into technology. There was far more demand than supply. There weren't all that many universities offering a four-year computer science degree. So uh, that created an opportunity to to enter the field with um, less than stellar uh, certifications and training and and education. And so I went back to school for a year and uh, I got a few networking certifications, learned a little bit about computers and jump-started my way into the field. I had uh, previous business experience, I'd been the director of, of a nonprofit. And so I had a lot of the soft skills that we talk about is so critical for any career. And I was able to leverage that uh, and a few tech skills and uh, and moved into the field originally in cybersecurity, working um, for a small consultancy that served uh, U.S. government clients. And that um, was sort of serendipitous because it led me into cybersecurity. And and that's um, that's a, it's a longer story from there, but that's how it all started. Yeah, uh, and I want to and wanted to start there because it's just so interesting in the landscape that I think um, is is starting to become apparent, at least to me and to a lot of people that I discuss with on the podcast, which is, you know, uh, the faith that an educational a set of educational institutions is going to solve all problems when it comes to kind of teaching people what they need to know and giving them, you know, the right sort of skills and certifications even for the workplace. That's an enormously optimistic notion, you know, knowing how many people there's out there and how quickly things change. So um, I was just curious, if you think back at your, you know, you had a a successful career at Microsoft uh, after, you know, this pivot of yours, 
Um, and and then I believe you also worked at uh, uh, McAfee, the the cyber uh, you know company. Do you think that the approach that you took, even though today is a very very different environment, but these career pivots are they still possible? Given that things are changing so much, you know, is it possible to to kind of envision or fashion yourself in a completely different subject than you than you either studied or or even you didn't study anything and you're just going to learn it kind of on on the go? Is that still possible? Oh, I think it's uh, absolutely possible. And, and far more common than we might think. I, you know, I think about the people I hired at Microsoft or frankly, throughout my career, most recently at Microsoft in technical roles, uh, you have the opportunity to see a lot of resumes come across your desk. And of course, at a company like Microsoft, you, you're, you're privileged in that you get to see a lot of really good resumes and, and highly qualified people because they've already made it through the recruiting filter. And a huge percentage of those people do not have what you would consider a traditional uh, educational background for the roles uh, they were applying for. They have a bachelor's degree in music and then many years of experience in technology or philosophies, you know, liberal sciences, chemical engineering, whatever it is, but very few of them actually have an actual degree in computer science. Nevertheless, they occupy technical roles and it's only through the journey of their career that they have uh, become qualified to apply to whatever position, you know, we were looking at. So Jennifer, enlighten me on this though, because when you make that choice, you do have some gaps and holes that some of the others in, on the teams or the people you get a, a come across, they will know certain things that you don't, either academically or they just have perhaps even just more time, you know, in in those networks. So, what is it like to navigate that situation when you you kind of I guess you come from a different background, so you have some unique things that they don't know. So I guess you're capitalizing on that. But then how do you work with those holes and, and plug those holes underway? I just imagine that a lot of employees, even, even if they're educated or supposedly educated to do something, when they get out there in a new role, they discover, wait, th- these are some interesting things I've never thought about before. Well, I, with the, the, to start the answer, um, it's helpful to think about the entire tech sector as not one monolithic thing, but really it, its own ecosystem with a lot of different roles and skill sets and experiences that you can use. So, you know, being a programmer is very different than being a systems architect is very different than being a, an engineer on site at a customer doing integrations or implementations. There's lots of roles. So, you know, you could argue that some of them Uh, you'll see a higher percentage of CS degrees, programmers particularly, right? Because that's a very niche part of the industry that does require a lot of very specific knowledge. Uh, Where I hired a lot of people that customer-facing engineers and architects, um, you typically see, you know, a smaller percentage of CS degrees because you also need a lot of other background in order to be proficient at that job. You need to understand the business uh, issues. You need to understand you know, but basically how technology intersects with business, which is a broader set of competencies. So you can work your way into that role, much like I did with mine, by leveraging what you have, which might be non-technical skills into a technical role. Uh, and that, that's very possible because it's such a wide field. It's not possible in every job, but I would say most jobs. But, you know, the other thing is that frameworks change all the time. The, the you know, pace of innovation in tech, as you know, is, is far greater than it is elsewhere. And so what you learn, and there's a kind of this common understanding that 
what you learn as a freshman in a four-year degree program is not nearly as relevant by the end as you might think. And so, and even you get folks coming out of school and four years later, what they learned has been replaced by new innovation. And so, you know, that degree has a diminishing value over time. And and, and if you want a senior person, then they've been in the work, you know, in, in the industry for 10 years, what they learned 14 years ago may or may not be relevant. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting world. It's essentially you just got to be with it, whatever that means in an, in any given field, right? You somehow just have to get the skills that that are that matter right then and there, and ideally be a tiny little bit ahead. So you've been um, active. You you're writing about these things. We'll talk about some of the specific things that you're, you're you're writing about in terms of these sort of new educational pathways, and then you just uh, joined a, a company too working on related workforce issues. Very interesting. So you, you've taken your own path and now you're actively advising others on, on how to fashion, I guess, their, their ways. What is this uh, Arrived Workforce Connections? Uh, what is the core of what you uh, are supposed to be doing there? It's a platform that connects people to work. So we, uh, if you think about the process of a company realizing that they have a job that they need someone to do and then they go advertise that job recruit people people apply you select a candidate you do all of that you onboard them you train them you schedule them you deploy them it's a pretty long workflow there's a lot of tech in that workflow most of it is optimized for employers or the staffing agencies who work with employers which is nothing wrong with that very little of that technology is actually optimized for the experience of the person who's applying for a job, the worker. And what we see uh, in today's current climate is that there is a pretty big labor shortage. Uh, If you double click on that labor shortage, you find that it it exists mostly in industries uh, where you've got unskilled and lightly skilled workers who are uh, largely doing very dynamic shift-based work, and they're not showing up. So our platform is a on on the back end. It's a it's an actual platform. You think about technology platform with a lot of matching technology, uh, and on the front end, it's a mobile app that we give to workers that helps them build a profile based on what they can do, what they want to do, their skills, their certifications, their geography, their preferences, and proactively matches that profile to available work and sends it to them in a mobile app. So it seeks to give people a much better experience connecting them to work uh, by optimizing their experience uh, along the way. So, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting if you're, if you, if you're right, which is in the kinds of categories of, of jobs that you're tackling here, and we'll talk about that in a second, that if, you know, if the supply and demand is really in the favor of the worker, why why don't they actually sit with all the cards? And it's it, it does strike me that many of the platforms that I've seen and, and, and you know, also used, they, first of all, they're not always optimized for anybody, but they're certainly, if they skew any, any direction, they do skew towards the, the employer for sure. Um, the skills required kind of for the grunt of jobs are not these academic skills that take six years or four years degrees, but they are something people have called middle skills. What what is that all about, and why should we really care about that concept? It was actually kind of new to me as a concept when we talked about it a little earlier. You and I, 
it's not something that I immediately really fully understood. What what is middle skills? Middle skills is uh, well, it's it's a a term that applies to the skills that people have in the middle part of the wage scale, actually. So if you think about, and it's a, it's comes up as a term um, in a conversation around what happens when uh, a country or, or the world enters and then exits a recession. And that itself, I'm giving you a lot of preamble to the, to the definition, but that itself is really interesting because if you look at the most recent recessions over the last 20, 30 years, uh, during the time period where technology was becoming more and more prevalent, in the recovery of all of those recessions, we see that um, although GDP returns to normal and sort of all sort of the revenue measures and output measures return to normal, what doesn't return to normal are the number of jobs. And so they have the most recent recessions have been called jobless recoveries, right? Because it, and, and, and it doesn't, it's not, it, it's intuitive because one of the reasons why companies can make those recoveries is because they're able to automate and become more efficient. And the way you automate and become more efficient is you hire less people, right? You let technology do the jobs that people were doing. Now, when you look at which jobs don't come back, a surprising image appears. It's not necessarily the jobs at the bottom of the wage scale, the very unskilled work folks that are in, in, in factories or warehouses, nor um, is it the jobs at the very top end of the wage scale? It happens to be the jobs in the middle. So that's the middle skills, right? It's not that the skills themselves are middle. It's the skills that people in the middle of the wage scale have. And um, one of the ideas around why that is true is because those happen to be jobs that are highly automatable. So if you're ever talking about RPA or robotics process automation, that's really just technology or AI automating finance operations or sales operations or the, you know, the back office stuff that every company does, really, if you look at it as a set of very repeatable tasks that technology can do. So that's why that group is surprisingly very vulnerable uh, to technology. But it's also a group that's hard to educate given the system that we have, right? Because if you're, if you're now talking about the the sort of the bulk of the labor force, essentially, you're talking about, I mean, whether you, you can call it the middle class, just to sort of have an image out there of like the size of the, of the amount of people you might be talking about, or like the working class, if you want to sort of go more in towards sort of old sort of factory language. But regardless, you know, if you apply a class lens or any sort of lens, it's a big chunk of people. Mm-hmm. And, and if we're now saying these are people who want to be educated, where are they going to go, right? Um, in the U.S., there's community colleges. There's not that many places in those community colleges, and, and those education uh, paths are also sort of expensive. You have advocated that people should increasingly start curating their own educational pathways, you've, you sort of called it. What is that all about? It is, I mean, you know, there, there are now some platforms emerging like yours, but let's sort of bracket that for a moment. What is it that you should do if you realize, you know, what we're talking about here might just be me and uh, I don't feel like there are any systems helping me. How should they go about it? And what, you know, what is this new reality of sort of fashioning your own education? 
It starts with a shift in your mindset about education and whose responsibility it is. Uh, so I think if you are of a certain age or you grew up, if you have a college degree or you know, that has been your default idea of how you gain skill and experience and uh, readiness for a career, then what you're really doing is saying, you know what, I'm going to pick a major and pick a school. And after that, I bear very little responsibility for what it is I learn. Right. The curriculum is set. There's really and it's it makes sense. Right. There's no choice. So I don't think we enter the workforce with a lot of ideas about what we actually do need to learn in order to be proficient at, at any given job, because our educators told us. And so that's the first mindset shift that we have to make, that you actually have to look at a job or a career and get very granular about what that career or job really entails and skill to that. So we know that the average job has, I, I believe the number, and I, I can I can get back to you on the actual number because I can remember where I read it, but it's somewhere around 60 or 70 discrete skills, any given job. And you know, some have less, some have more. But if you thought about what it is you do every day in terms of the number, or excuse me, not, not skills, tasks. So right. there are a couple dozen tasks associated with any job. If you were to think about your job that way, and then think about your the skill required to perform all those tasks. You might start to see a pattern of proficiency uh, in your own skill set, or where you may have gaps in your skill set. If you took that framework and applied it to a thing that you might want to do in five years, and thought about it at the task level, you might, you know, be able to come up with a list of skills that you would need to have in order to do that job. And I think that's the beginning of designing your own curriculum. So that's where it starts. I think beyond that, uh, it's finding where you can you can obtain that kind of training or those certifications or whatever it is you need to do. And there's just so much out there right now. Every university is trying to rebrand themselves as some kind of non-traditional online training opportunity because that's just a revenue model that they they are needing to to grow and and you know they're competing with all sorts of you know sort of born in the cloud. Uh, training program. So there's no lack of uh, of opportunity to find organizations that can provide you with those skills and certifications if that's what you're looking for. Right. So there's no shortage, but I guess the problem is to navigate and find what's right for you, no matter, you know, because the offering is maybe large, but it's hard to sort of meander through all of that information and say, well, this is right for me. It has the right sort of price and quality ratio and time and whatever I have to invest. It's not an easy world that you're envisaging here. Or, I mean, this is the world, I guess. That's what you're sort of saying. There's no choice. This is, I mean, if you are kind of in this category where, you know, the very, very traditional choice of going to a four-year college or something for some reason isn't very attractive financially or for, you know, interest-wise, then you are in this landscape right there. You don't have a choice. Right. Yeah, I don't, and it's not easy. I think we're at the very beginning of this. I think this is why uh, this conversation is so important because it's a new conversation and, and it does require, um, it requires a new way of thinking about yourself. I think there's a, an element of branding that's involved. Uh, if you think about 
the way we are doing that on LinkedIn today, more and more people are beginning to understand that it matters how you describe your job. It matters how you describe who you are and what you want to do. Um, and as you get a, a more, um, you get more familiar with looking at yourself from an external lens, like how am I being viewed and what do you, what do I think people would want from me? And this is, this is who I say I am. And so I've got to do these things to prove it. You know, that, that whole mindset, social media helps us in a way because it helps us think about what we need to do in order to be true to our own brand, which oftentimes is scaling. You know, the, the thing that strikes me when, when you, uh, you're talking about this is that, I mean, I don't know if the term middle skills is actually super helpful because you have yourself proven, not that you sort of started, you know, from rags to riches. I mean, you 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 went to a very great university. You just, you just shifted into technology. But this idea that there's anything middle about this path, I think, is a little of a misnomer, right? Because it assumes still, the lens is still, you get a four-year college degree and you're set. You, you know, you'll be an echelon ahead of everyone else in terms of salary and opportunity and whatever. And then you'll just grow from there. But I, but I guess what we're talking about here is that if you play these cards right, you, you carve out a brand and you pick the skills that fit you and you compensate for some skills you don't have by some clever education and networking, you can get very far this way. I mean, some people will get very far this way. This is not at all a dystopia in and of itself. This is actually a very big opportunity. I mean, I think so. I, you know, we're, we're talking about such large population sets. You could make a lot of arguments about whether or not a lot of people do, or a lot of people don't, you know, this is, this is tough. And, and it's, it, we would be tone deaf to not recognize how hard it is for, you know, frankly, it has always been, but very hard for, you know, anyone under 30 right now to get into the job market. This, this great resignation that's happening, COVID, all of this makes it extremely difficult. Many people will try this path and and struggle greatly. Uh, but I do believe this is the way it will go. I do believe that uh, HR professionals, I, I am more in tune with what's happening in the US and the rest of the world, but I believe it's true everywhere that there is a growing recognition that uh, the kinds of jobs we have today are not the kinds of jobs we will have tomorrow that we'll lose 85 million jobs in the next 10 years, but we'll gain 95. But those 95 million jobs will not require the same skills as the you know, skills required by the 85 million jobs we lost. And so there's, there is a growing recognition among policymakers, government officials, corporate leaders, HR organizations, and the tech industry that this is something that's happening and that people can't afford a four-year education, particularly if they've already gotten one or they're halfway through their careers and they've got kids and a mortgage to pay. So there is a practical reality underneath all of this that I think is going to make this possible. Um, ultimately, we're in a competitive society. Some people are going to jump on this and do it really well, and uh, and they will lead the rest of us. But I, I think it's, you know, this is real. It's happening, and um, it behooves all of us to pay attention. Well, you've touched on a bunch of things that might happen in the future. We'll, we'll get to that in, in in a second. But just just for now, uh, the work you're writing on what are uh, what's at the core of uh, of the book that you're writing on? The is it are you you're writing it to people who are in this situation, or are you also writing it to to these policymakers and tech companies? I'm writing it to people. 
I'm writing it to people because if you look, there's actually a lot of literature that's already being written by economists to economists, by tech, you know, glitterati or literati to other tech people. And, um, and those are the books that I read. I'm sure you read and, and they're, they're what keep you informed. But I didn't think I um, could be a, an original voice in that market um, or, and th- that, that market needed a voice or that audience needed another voice. There are, I worry more about people who are in, whether it's a middle school job or an unskilled job, um, who don't have a framework for understanding what the future is going to look like and what they need to do individually to be ready for it. I saw that at the end of my career at Microsoft, I uh, had an innovation program that was about digital skilling. And it started out very simple because we just wanted people to learn how to use Azure because you can't sell Azure to a company if the company doesn't have any employees who knows how to, who know how to use it. And then it got broader because, well, it turns out you can't really learn Azure unless you have some fundamental computer skills. And then it got broader because you can't really get people to learn computer skills if they didn't learn something STEM in high school or elsewhere or have a mindset that technology was interesting or a lucrative career. And, you know, it got to be this much bigger conversation and, and frankly, a more systemic problem. And then if you take a big step back, you start to see that there is a growing digital divide between people who have skills and think they can have skills and the people who don't have skills and think they can't get those. And those that fault line runs you know, roughly in the same direction as a socioeconomic divide. So this was seemed like a problem worth solving. And so the book was an attempt to say, hey guys, I have a psych degree from a decent university. And so that's more than a lot of people, but I did make it pretty far and I did it by following a certain path. And I'm, you know, very rarely the smartest person in the room, unfortunately for me, but I did it anyway. So if I can do it, you can do it. And here's my story. And here are the stories of others like me. And here are some frameworks that you can use to think about your own journey. So is it largely then about a combination of confidence and some clever ways of thinking about it or, or, or is, because that, that would be good if it's that way. And I'm hoping that that's kind of is the message, you know, you're, you're trying to pass along there because like you said, some people will be smarter than you or more fortunate. They start from a better position. You know, maybe some of those people also should try this, this new path, right? Because it actually is pretty fruitful on a personal level, right? You have grown by challenging yourself this way. But, but do you think that, uh, it's possible to think of it as, as you know, it's basically an opportunity. I do. I do. I, I think that um, it is, to your point, it's part mindset, part strategy, or the tactics around how you do it in, in this era. You're mm-hmm. rethinking what education, whose responsibility is it to figure out what you need to learn? Is it a university mm-hmm. anymore, or do you have to take that on yourself? Uh, I spend several chapters talking about what it really looks like behind the curtain in, in corporate America, because yeah. I think it's not nearly as daunting as people think, you know, people are people at the end of the day and uh, social systems look roughly the same, whether it's a high school or a company. So um, there's some of that demystification around how do you build a career? You know, your resume gets you in the door, but that's not what keeps you there. Uh, and so there's a different way of looking at that. And, um, but yes, I think it's all an effort to try to help people understand that it's possible to do well, to survive and to thrive, even in a highly digitized economy. If you look at that, 
the way this is going to shake out. And and again, let's talk about it perhaps from the perspective of of the people you're writing for or or thinking about the most also in your new new uh, gig here. What do you think is going to happen to the future of work as relates to this particular strategy and the people we're talking about here? So people with middle skills who are in theory being squeezed by this system, which doesn't really have institutions that respond so well to them because even if they go even if we you and i went back into the educational system today i i don't know that there are many clever places to go i i think almost this like portfolio picking of courses is actually makes a lot of sense wherever you are in your career but anyway how is this going to evolve do you ha- do you have some frameworks for thinking about that because to one thing you said earlier um if you started planning for skills and you said, you know, five years from now, I want to have these skills, there's also the danger that if the world changes too fast, then you're you're planning for these 50 skills that you want. But then five years from there, you have the same problem as, as the university has when they're teaching you something. You sort of have to be your own futurist is, my, is what I'm trying to drive at. So yeah. where is it going? Yeah. Well, there are a couple things. Um, there's two, two concepts that I think um, are useful in this conversation uh, one of them is the difference between context and fluency. So we'll talk about that. Um, the other is um, is using the paradigm of technology itself to kind of understand the future. So if we think about technology over the last 20 years, what, what the tech industry has done broadly in order to encourage adoption is to, you know, the, the nerdy way of saying it is we've abstracted out the complexity of technology so that we can move up the stack, right? So it used to be, it just to do anything on a mainframe, on a computer before there was a graphical user interface or GUI took a lot of skill, right? So it was very, very difficult for anyone to jump in. And then what did we do? We made that easy. We abstracted out the complexity of it. We put a GUI on it and a user interface and made it super little icons and pictures and drags and drops. And we made technology easier. And that has been the history of technology. The secret of its adoption is that we always make it easier. So we make the lower level of technology easier, and then we build on top of it. And then we build on right. top of it. And we build on top of it. So AI and quantum computing, that's kind of the current edge of technology. There will be a next edge of technology. AI will get easier to use. Quantum computing, no one will ever have to know what's under the hood of the data center. It just works really well, and it's super fast. So I think that paradigm is the paradigm of human evolution, right? Technology being nothing more than a human expression. It's something that we created. We also do that all the time, right? We do that in athletics. We do that in performance. We do that in education and in our knowledge. We build upon what we know. The things that were hard are now easy. So I do think that it's just a matter of whether or not you keep up. So there's some you get into a, a conversation around social systems and economics because some people can't keep up. And so there's a, there's a conversation there, but just with respect to our basic ability to thrive in an increasingly technical world, we'll be able to do that because this, the hard stuff will become easy for us. And then we'll, as long as we keep moving up, we'll keep pace. Now to the question of that's kind of the answer for a broad group of people for a system or an economy or culture society, at the individual level, it looks a little different. And I think there, um, the way I look at it is to think about the difference between having some kind of digital context versus fluency. 
is context is um, context is a jigsaw puzzle that you've laid out on your table and you've put the pieces of the border together and you have five pieces and they're blue. And so you kind of know they're the sky and you put the sky up at the top of the puzzle and there's three red pieces. That's a house, and you know, that's down at the bottom and you start to fill it in and a picture emerges. You have a general sense of directionality and placement and relationship. That's context. That's understanding how a, that a mobile app is actually talking to a backend service and getting data back and forth. You don't know how to write a mobile app, but you get the kind of the idea between front end and back end. You don't need to know everything, but it gives you some kind of map that allows you to navigate your way through deeper technology concepts. Now, if you're building a career where you need certain competencies, then it, you can also dive deep and learn something and become very fluent in it. Right. But if you don't have the context, it's like being a forest. Right. You can learn everything about a certain tree and have no idea where you are. You have to kind of strike that balance. And if you can do that, I think that's how you chart your future. That's how you can become, in your words, your own futurist. I mean, it's potentially enormously powerful, right? Because this is not something to your point, like technology is something we create. So the extent to which something's going to come along that's just so foreign to someone who's actually just following what is happening is that that's kind of unlikely, right? Uh, it's almost like you just got to participate in the game and try to interpret what's what's going on. Sort of like, I'm almost reminded of the old thing of like, you know, you got to read the paper and know what the news is. That's literally your context. You got to understand where, you know, where, where, where you should be exploring because otherwise you're exploring the wrong thing and then your fluency but the fluency is tricky to because there you said 50 60 different tasks that someone might ask you to do but if you don't really know what direction right then that list of tasks multiplies and suddenly it's like hundreds of things and you can't keep it in your head mm -hmm. it's not an easy hmm. that's not an easy thing hmm. So maybe that is why the old sort of career advisors were sort of saying, well, you should go to a manual job or you should go to this, except it's not that easy, is it, right? Because what are these jobs anymore? Yeah. So, so that's my question. Okay, um, these are two concepts, but if you have to double down on something, for example, so w would you double down only on things that you think you're good at? Or would you take a mix of things that you think are attractive in the future and that you think you have a sense of? And would you even work on your weaknesses? I mean, is there is there a heuristic here? Is there a way that you should approach this? Well, um, yes, I think there is a way that you can approach it. I also think there's a lot of other help. So I don't think we are truly, um, we're talking about this in the context of an individual, but the individual is in the context of a group. And so we do need to talk about what the rest of the group is doing to help. But from a, a personal perspective, um, I suppose different people would have different answers. My answer is um, it's that saying you can only grow from where you're planted. So your original context is your own placement in the puzzle, right? the, your own placement in, in the broader sea of things. So thinking about, um, I always think about adjacent skills and complementary skills, and that those are my terms. And so to, to explain it, a comp so um, you are a finance person. Uh, you might need to learn a little bit more about finance. So, you know, and you're a finance person, you want to figure out, you know, how do you keep your job? How do you move up in your career? How do you broaden your skill set? There are these skills that you need to learn that are the more advanced concepts in finance.
But almost every job is a job that is applied to an industry or applied to a certain problem. And so also understanding the problem that you're in, you're a finance person in healthcare. Well, you can also learn about healthcare. So simple, simple example, but you, you know, if you start from where you are and think about what are these adjacent skills, maybe I think, you know, it's not my, my job that's going to go away. It's the industry that's dying. So I'm going to be a finance person in a different industry. I should go learn about that industry. How, what are the creative ways for me to do that? Is there an internship? Is there a network opportunity? Is there, what, a, what is it? But starting from where you are, I think is extremely That's important. super helpful. I, I have a question though, because, so those are, that's where you're from, you know, where, where you're, you're at. So your position in the system, you got to understand that first of all, you know, where am I, what are my skills? What, you know, what is it that I start out with and then some adjacent skills, but what about, so there's an enormous talk about STEM or technology skills, generally science skills, and then obviously digital skills specifically. And, and you moved into, you know, a tech firm where presumably uh, digital skills were in hi high demand. But then there's also this notion of general sort of cognitive skills. And how, how do you best learn those? I mean, I would perhaps conjecture that so some people learn cognitive skills in social science, some learn them, you know, thinking skills, and some learn them better in mathematics. But um, as society is changing, do you think there are certain platform skills, generic types of skills or ways of acquiring those skills that everyone should should do and are they necessarily stem skills I, there's a big debate about this right some people want to add art to stem and and then you know may, maybe stem isn't all that uh, what it, what is sort of concocted to be what what is your view on this whole idea like the basic platform oh i mean I, I kind of side with the educators who who um, think that we have forgotten to teach our children how to think I don't think there's STEM skills. I think it's learning how to think. I think it's, you know, anybody who would like to reintroduce Socratic debate into sixth grade classes, you know, it's, it is how you think. I mean, anything in technology is just, it's logic, right? It's complicated logic, but it's logic trees. It's how you think your way through a problem. A system, a computing system has the same underlying patterns as any other kind of system. You know, so if you can think in systems, there's a great book, Donella Meadows, Thinking in Systems. She's a very um, sort of influential person in that space, talks about it. And if you can think in systems, you can apply that way of thinking to any problem, whether you're building a bridge or a computer system. So um, I would argue that it's not STEM skills. Now, your bigger question where you started, it's, I don't know how to answer. How do you teach that later? And then how do you prove that you have it? Do you have to prove that you have it on your resume to get the job, or do you have to prove it on the job in order to keep the job? These are these are yeah, and I think th these are important questions because I think that is actually right there. What you just said is one explanation why the education system still exists. Like, why are they? Why are these dinosaurs not dead? If you know what I mean. Like, why are the universities still around? Why are there brands? Like, at the end of the day, it's because they serve some sort of useful purpose in mm -hmm. terms of producing a paper that tells an employer who's lazy that if I hire this person, I have some sort of guarantee that someone has tried to teach this person something. And at some point, the person was assessed as reasonable within the standard of whatever mm -hmm. institutional brand. So it's a laziness type metric, but it is nearly timeless, right? Everybody, we, we are busy people. We need to rely on something. So if you put that back to then us, 
who are then trying to enter this new market, how do you prove it? There are any number of online certificates you can get, but would you or I hire a person on the basis of a certificate from an institution we didn't trust or haven't hired a candidate from before? Right, so it's very nice with the Ivy League because there's, you know, I don't know how many Ivy League schools there are, eight, um, six, uh, limited number. But when you multiply that by 5,000, how do you regain trust in anything related to skills and competencies when the landscape is so, evol you know, evolving all the time? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. I do think there's some, um, there's some good movement in that space. If you think about why it is that we trust the university. Uh, part of it's because it's a proven model that if you put these classes together in a row over a four-year period or some period of time, then that typically results in a certain kind of candidate. That's, that's why we like it. And then we say, great, so this is the pattern. And now we'll have some general rules about what this path should look like. And then we'll accredit universities according to their ability to follow the path in a normalized way. So we have built this taxonomy that generally gives us some predictability in the system. That's what's really missing, right? If you think about all the online training courses, even edX, the ones that are you know, sponsored by Harvard and, and MIT, these micromasters programs or the six month coding bootcamp, the real problem isn't, I mean, part of the problem is sure, are we actually teaching cognitive skills? I think that's, that's a separate conversation, but really just how do I know the curriculum it's going to generate the same result as the curriculum I do understand, which is from an accredited university. And there is where I think AI starts to play uh, a role. It's nascent at this point. But the ability to say, I can look at all the university is doing is putting together a constellation of learnings and saying, if you learn these, this constellation of things, it's going to create this kind of person. But you could also take a look at a million resumes and look at experience and, you know, other skills or certifications that were acquired um, and education and elsewhere and say, OK, I can start to see a pattern across people and understand, you know, what what kind of broader experience generates the person that I want. And if you can do that, then you release your uh, grip on the need for an accredited educational path. And you can start to be a little bit more novel in your thinking about what a person needs to do or look like in order to be qualified for a job. So I do think there's some interesting work. Uh, is it SkyHive or a couple companies, FutureFit AI? There's a few startups in this space that are trying to do that. And, uh, and hopefully that allows us to uh, you know, think about this a little bit differently. Well, I mean, in the... In, in certain technology spaces, right, where where the financial system is kind of being challenged by more decentralized approaches, there have been people saying that education is, you know, about to face a similar kind of moment where where you can start to have trust in a distributed way. And that would, you know, to, to what you're talking about, that would change the game. If you could in some way sort of authenticate the fact that people had learned something, had an experience that was meaningful. But it is more challenging, even in a pandemic environment, right? When, when even those established schools have been doing much more online, how do you even uh, ascertain that people have those skills when you can't even hold exams, for example, or, or people haven't been together over a year or four? They have lost 
you know, the social component, it may be, which perhaps was the learning in the first place. These are, um, I guess, persisting challenges. They're not just going away. And in your world here with, with these, uh, edu- your own educational pathway, you have to think about these intangibles as well, right? Because if you go to a known university and you are in a cohort, if anything, you at least can discuss with a group of people. And, and you can trust and, 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 you know, those people can come with you and there's sort of evidence that that actually helps you. You know, you, ha- you have some people that are actually, they know what you know and, and they will suggest you for jobs, you know, perennially throughout your career. How do you deal with building community hmm. when you are you and you're trying to fashion your own way around? You still need people. You said the group, but how do you establish that group? I mean, it's not automatic, where is that? There is no group until you make one. And and if you are lucky enough to have a platform, digital or otherwise, that you can use to create a group, then you know you you will uh, effort over time. You will likely get there. I think the platform for people who are already making a living wage is LinkedIn. Frankly. I think that's, and we're learning how to do that. Not everybody loves it. Not everybody needs to do it. Uh, But for people who are realizing they've got to create a brand around who they are, then that is a platform that's particularly useful. And I think we'll see a growing competence in that area. Um, And it's obviously, you know, what you do on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter also helps your ability to think about how you are perceived by others, which is ultimately what you're talking about when you're trying to get a job. Um, I worry more about the people who are not making a living wage because there is no platform for them to do that. So the digital divide, and we were talking a lot about middle skills. And I think, frankly, middle skills to me is is people need to want to move forward. So the the book is, you know, a little bit of a clarion call to say, hey, the world is changing and and you should pay attention but these are people who largely have jobs and may or may not understand the gravity of the problem coming at them. Then we have this whole other group of people who um, who are not making a living wage, who don't have a lot of skills, for whom there is a much wider gap between them and technical skills and don't have a platform like LinkedIn where they can build that cohort of people or network of people who can help them. And I think that's a much more systemic and serious problem. Um, we're at the tail end, but I'm reminded by some economists in the 20s and 30s who thought that, you know, we would essentially be by this point in humanity be sitting down and machines would be doing so much of the labor that we wouldn't be toiling and, and working very hard. That it doesn't seem to pan out, neither at the top of the ladder nor at the middle and certainly not at the bottom of, of any ladder. W- what do you think the future holds? Are we going to be hard workers forever? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think people at the top of the wage scale will figure out how to not work. I think, um, I think the dystopian view is that labor will always bottom end of the wage scale, that labor will always be cheaper than technology. So those people will work and the people in the middle will always be moving up the tech stack as it were and finding the next job. So I, I actually think that we'll have plenty of work But that's maybe not a bad thing, Jennifer. You, you, you know, some of the things we're talking about. It's it's hard work to improve yourself and get skills, but it's also it can be very rewarding. I agree. 
All right. Well, interesting, interesting futures. And uh, I look forward to, to reading your work when it comes out. And congratulations on Arrived Workforce Connections. I hope that um, I get to see some, uh, some fruits of that, that work as well. Well, congratulations on these achievements. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. You have just listened to episode 111 of the Futurist podcast with host Ronar Nunheim, futurist and author. The topic was how to demystify technology. In this conversation, we talked about the future of work and particularly the increasing globalization of the workforce. My takeaway is that the future of work still has some surprises in store, but one remaining challenge is to motivate young people to tackle the fact that career and work questions are hard to pin down. What to study, how to study, how to rest, how to succeed, how to make the most of technology as it changes and becomes more complex. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. And if you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 135, Simple is the Future, episode 124 on cultural agility, or episode 108 on play, uncertainty, and growth. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. And you can find Yegi at yegi.org. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.